When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Well, here we are then. Yeah, another month arrives and we're still locked down, but not quite locked up. The dust still hasn't settled on the race debate after the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities declared yesterday that Britain was not institutionally racist. The howling could be heard all the way to the moon last night and it's still going on today. They're not having it, are they? After all, there's jobs to be had, there's money to be made. You can't just dismantle an industry overnight. Yesterday, two of the most privileged men in Britain were both claiming that the report was wrong. Both men are paid in excess of £200,000 a year by the British taxpayer. Both men are members of Parliament. David Lammy was sounding off about the gaslighting that was going on while declaring himself to be tired of it all. Meanwhile, his Labour colleague Clive Lewis tweeted a picture of a Ku Klux Klan wizard from America with the caption, Nothing to see here quite despicable. We'll continue to take your calls on the subject today. John Rental will join us from The Independent as well. I'll ask him whether the Lib Dems have finally found a policy that some people might actually like. To do with lockdown, of course. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we're joined by commentator Helen Dale, who will address the problem for schools and gender in this country as the NSPCC sets up a helpline for pupils to call and report cases of sexual abuse. We'll be asking just how bad this problem really is. Plus, LaDonna Harvey joins us from the United States of America with a special report on the George Floyd murder case in Minneapolis. 0344 499 1000. Also, it's April Fool's Day, and I think the best trick has been performed by The Guardian. Uh, who have put a cover price of £2.20 on the front page today. I mean, who in their right mind's paying £2.20 for that garbage? For heaven's sake, Scotland's Lib Dem leader, of course, Willie Rennie, will be here as part of our coverage of the Scottish elections. And because it's Thursday, Helena Nicklin is here with some Thursday club drink suggestions for the Easter weekend, which is coming up very, very fast on the rails. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest-growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Not that I would in any way suggest that John Rental uh, is a cut-rate commentator, but The Independent only costs 65 pence. The Guardian, £2.20. Take your pick. I would say uh, The Independent is worth twice what The Guardian is. It turns out mathematically that even that's not correct. John, a very good morning to you. <laughs> good morning. Now, uh, I, I, hope, I hope you appreciate the free advert. Uh, well, no, I'm very grateful to, that, to you for that. But actually, I think you're talking about the I newspaper, which is, uh, which is now a separate company, although... Uh, some of my articles do appear in there because we have a contract with them. Yes, uh, it's confusing, isn't it? The Independent is now a wholly online uh, uh, entity. I'm a, I'm a hologram. Uh, well, well, that, well, even even better then, because that that means we don't have to pay you at all, doesn't it? Well, you do. You, you have a we have a subscription uh, uh, element to our. Yes, to you our have offer. a you have a bit of a paywall because I sometimes can't always find what you've written. Well, indeed, you have to pay for it, uh, Mike, because uh, that is how journalism works. If Are you, you want sure? Quality... Well, hang on. The Talk Radio uh, Free Society is free. You can listen to Talk Radio. You can watch us, indeed, for nothing. No, no BBC licence fee required. Indeed, um, and advertising is a, is a is a wonderful thing, and it allows most of the uh, what you read on the Independent to be to be free. But uh, we do we do charge for some uh, some special stuff, including some of the stuff that I write, because yes. that really. 
Yes, indeed. Anyway, that's enough of an advert. I didn't expect it to go on for five <laughs> minutes, you know. But let's now talk about uh, let's talk about the world of politics because uh, something very odd is happening this week. Two men who have otherwise not really been very uh, much in opposition to any government policy have suddenly become in opposition to government policy. I.e., we've got Sir Keir Starmer and even more surprisingly, Sir Ed Davey, um, who suddenly found his voice. I mean, what is going well, on? Yeah, no, Ed Davey has just given two interviews. Uh, opposing uh, vaccine passports, and um, Keir Starmer has uh, also given an interview uh, appearing to oppose vaccine passports. Although, if you if you look at what he actually said, it's a little bit more uh, hedged around with uh, with caveats. Mm. But uh, no, his his instinct is is against vaccine pa- passports. Uh, both of them are absolutely right, of course. I think vaccine passports are uh, un- unnecessary, and I think. You know, if you if the government ever gets to the stage of trying to uh, bring forward a workable scheme, they'll they'll discover how unworkable it it actually is in practice. Mm. And I think you know, there's a very there's a very short window in which a vaccine passport make a domestic vaccine passport makes any sense at all. Because I think uh, as long as the number of cases is extremely low, uh, there's no real need for it. Mm. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I think they should really learn something from the test and trace debacle, shouldn't they? Because when they put all those um, QR codes outside of bars and restaurants when people were going into them when they were open, which seems a very long time ago. In fact, I think it was always it was last year. Um, yeah. An awful lot of people were going out and nobody knew who they were because, quite frankly, it's not the restaurant's job to chase everybody at a table of four to find out who they all are. Well, quite. I mean, that's the problem with vaccine passports is uh, is requiring restaurants and pubs to to enforce them, and uh, you know it's it's not in their particular in their interest to do so particularly. No, exactly. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I mean, presumably well, much of this uh, activity, uh, particularly from Ed Davey, uh, is because there's an election coming up. Well, well, you would have hoped that Ed Davey would have important things to say as a defender of liberalism. Yes. Uh, you know, and uh, what what is surprising is is how how late he's left it. Um, I mean, last week the Liberal Democrats did manage to vote against the extension of the uh, Coronavirus Act yeah. um, uh, because uh, they've suddenly woken up to the fact that by mistake almost the government uh, managed to criminalise uh, protest and uh, take away the right to uh, to free expression mm. uh, for a large periods of the uh, uh, of the pandemic. Uh, now the government has actually included in the in the regulations a specific exemption for uh, for uh, protest as a reason for public gathering. Uh, the Lib Dems have rather belatedly decided to oppose it all. Mm. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, but then nothing that Ed Davey does... <laughs> to me. No, that's the thing. I mean, he's been so quiet, actually, ever since he was made leader last year and declared that he would go around the country to discover what everybody wanted. Um, and the country was then locked down, so you really presume he didn't really go anywhere. And he didn't have anything to say for quite a long time. But now he suddenly has found something to hang his hat on. I'm quite grateful yeah, for it. And, and it turns out, but it turns out to be exactly the same thing that the Labour leader is saying. Yeah. So he doesn't leave a lot of, uh, a lot of cut through for that. I mean, there's much more attention paid uh, in the media today to Keir Starmer's interview than there is to uh, to Ed Davies. Two interviews in yeah. which he said the same thing. And and the one issue on which Ed Davey did have the chance to really distinguish himself, both from Labour and the Conservatives, which was by positioning the Lib Dems as the pro-EU party, the party of rejoin, mm. um, he, he didn't want to do that. Uh, so it, it does leave us asking the question, what is the point of the Lib Dems? Well, I mean, that's a question I suppose we've been asking for quite a long time, and particularly now when there are so few of them. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, there have been times when there, there has been a point to the Lib Dems, uh, when they were the the the, um, the defenders of uh, civil liberties, and when they when they were the most pro-European uh, of of the three parties, yeah. but. They don't seem to want to do that anymore. And also, if you remember, before the 2019 election in December, there was a lot of talk because they'd had all those people who had defected to the Lib Dems. They thought they had a sort of 25 or so strong uh, team. They were hopeful of getting more and they were hopeful of doing some kind of deal with the SNP to, to wield quite a bit of power in Westminster. And that's all just evaporated, isn't it? Well, yes, because that was that was built on uh, built on sand, I'm afraid, Joe Swinson. Uh, mistook a a short period of uh, of success in the opinion polls for a a, a big uh, change in fundamental public opinion, uh, and uh, turned out uh, to that turned out to be 
to, to have worked out so well that uh, she ended up losing her seat. Mm. Yes, I know, tragically. Um, talking of Scotland, and things have been rather interesting since you and I last spoke. Alex Salmond entering the fray with the Alba party. Um, and a lot of people wondering whether he's on this such a revenge kick right now that he's never going to stop until Nicola Sturgeon at some point steps away. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it, is, it really is extraordinary. I mean, for those of us who uh, who believe in the United Kingdom and keeping the country together, uh, I mean, it's an absolute gift. I mean, I would rather I would rather win the argument than than, than have uh, have the cause of uh, separatism uh, so damaged by a personal feud in mm. this way. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, needs must. And uh, if it helps keep uh, keep the country that I love. Uh, together, um, all the better. Yes, but isn't it extraordinary? I mean, you and I will know this, I suppose, from time immemorial, how quickly somebody who has been previously perceived to be a brilliant leader has suddenly now got a completely different look. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon, six months ago, um, was being talked about in the same way that they talk about the Prime Minister of New Zealand, in the same way that Angela Merkel used to be talked about. You know, isn't it great to see these wonderful women running countries so successfully? Now, yeah. I mean, you literally wouldn't give a, you know, the, the church fund to, to operate. <laughs> well, and, and, and there's a story in the in the papers today about uh, the, a branch of the SNP claiming uh, COVID uh, support funds for uh, for it, for running its offices. So, yeah, yeah the SNP's reputation is being tarnished. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon is still uh, one of the most popular uh, politicians in the country. It's certainly very popular in, in, in Scotland, although that popularity has declined somewhat from its, uh, its sky-high peaks. Mm. But uh, but the popularity of uh, of Alex Salmond is is quite a phenomenon. I mean, he used to be uh, as as popular as as Nicola Sturgeon is now, oh. and uh, has has undergone uh, a sort of Blairite uh, fall from grace in the sense that he's now he's now um, even more unpopular in Scotland than Boris Johnson, and that really is saying something. That really is saying something because Boris Johnson is not a man that uh, often gets cheered to the rafters in, uh, uh, in in that part of the world. But let's talk a little bit about the Hartlepool situation as well, because Hartlepool by-election, a big deal for, for Sir Keir Starmer. Um, I was under the impression that the, the, the candidate who had been sort of uh, alleged to have written things in the past on Twitter, which were not exactly, shall we say, savoury, um, I thought they might be replacing him, but apparently not. Oh, no, they're... they're... They're sticking with him. Um, I thought he was absolutely the wrong candidate. I mean, uh, not just because of uh, his his checkered uh, social media history, but because he was such an uh, an avid Remainer and an advocate of a second referendum, which I th I thought would go down extremely badly, right. which was seventy percent leave. Um, and I thought uh, I thought Labour were on course uh, to lose that seat, uh, but then the Conservatives selected a candidate um, who. Jill Mortimer, who you know see, is probably a perfectly perfectly good, but she's not from Hartlepool. Mm. Uh, she's uh, she's from North Yorkshire. Uh, I mean, Paul Williams, the Labour candidate, isn't from Hartlepool either. I thought that was a great weakness of his. But it's interesting. I thought that the Conservatives couldn't find a stronger, uh, more local candidate because being the local candidate, especially in a by-election, is a really important thing, and then especially in a place like Hartlepool, which has such a strong sense of its own. Uh, identity uh to have to import someone from uh, from yorkshire uh doesn't seem like uh, a, a good idea it suggests that uh any of the possible strong candidates for the tories uh took one look at it and decided they couldn't win it mm. and what do you make of the reform candidate because reform obviously have got um, um hopes that they could uh, upset the apple cart because of what happened at the general election and they get they, they did they did quite well um but uh, i'm not sure that he's the right guy either well, no. And, and the point is, they were the Brexit party. Then. Yeah. I mean, they had a very, very clear identity at a time when Brexit really mattered. Now, obviously, Brexit matters less, which is which is presumably the, the Labour Party's calculation uh, that it won't matter that their their candidate is uh, is an ultra remainer. Uh, but I just don't think uh, the, you know, the Brexit the Brexit party now, the reform party is going to it, it is going to cut through in this in the same way that it did in the general election win. You know, Richard Tice, who is now the leader of the Reform Party, yeah. was the candidate in Hartlepool uh, and a very strong candidate and actually uh, managed to split the uh, split the leave vote to uh, hand the seat to, to, to Labour. And yeah. I think so. so I think Labour might end up holding uh, 
holding the seat in the by-election now. Yes, absolutely right. Now, uh, we've also had this week of, uh, of uh, rather, shall we say, um, unnecessarily um, lurid allegations and, and, and remembrances of the Jennifer Arcuri situation with Boris Johnson. But he seems remarkably untouched by it all, really. I mean, until and, 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 and until, well, I'm not, I'm not sure if it ever will happen, but until this kind of inquiry looks into whether there was any inappropriate uh, um, sort of uh, giving giving of money, public money to her yeah. from him. I mean, it's 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 possibly the most boring sex scandal I think I've ever seen. <laughs> well, it still, it still seems to interest some people. Well, interest the Daily Mirror. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, as you say, the the thing is, we 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 sort of knew all of this. I mean, the fact that uh, Jennifer Arcuri now uh, has con- has has uh, confirmed that. Uh, that her story is that they had a four-year-long affair. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, even even the details, um, such as him, he, he, you know, him borrowing three pounds from her on their first date mm. to pay for drink. Uh, I mean, I think I'd read that before. Yes. So you know, in a sense, it's all been priced in. Everybody knows what Boris is like, uh, and people have an opinion of him as prime minister. Uh, taking all that into account, and uh, you know, most, you know, it seems like an awful lot of people prepared to overlook uh, his, mm. his his life, or even to think that it's quite uh, it's quite amusing. Yeah, but is there an agenda going on here as well? Because look at the Mail this morning, you know, where they've got Carry Charity hit by official spending probe. I mean, this is a story about a charity commission investigation into the Aspinall Foundation, which has got a very tenuous link to Carrie Simmons. Um, yeah. It seems as though the mail has but, become a bit obsessed with Carrie Simmons. They've been doing stories on um, the redecoration of Downing Street. They've been now doing stories on her uh, charitable works. I mean, you'd, you'd like you'd wonder whether Geordie Gregg doesn't like Boris Johnson. Well, or or, or Carrie Simmons. I mean, yeah. You know, the Daily Mail has been going very hard on uh, on the redecoration of the uh, of the Downing Street flat, um, which uh, was organised by. Uh, the Prime Minister's fiance. Yeah. Uh, but it's, I mean, it, it's not that there's a tenuous connection between the Aspinall Zoo and Carrie Simons. I mean, she is actually employed as a as a PR uh, a spokesperson for for mm. the company. So, yeah. uh, perfectly legitimate uh, legitimate story. But you're absolutely right. It does seem that the the Daily Mail has got it in for her. Yeah, and I mean, listen, I'm not at all in favour of public money being wasted on redecorating Downing Street every two or three years because it seems to cost a ludicrous amount of money every time they do anything inside there. And you just think, well, hang on, I mean, didn't the Camerons only just redecorate it a few years ago? And also, I've got no... um, I I hold no brief for the Aspinall Foundation because I once paid an awful lot of money to go into their zoo and the gorillas weren't there. They were in (laughs) Africa. Literally, they didn't tell us when we went in. (laughs) So so my children were rather disappointed. Oh, well, what a, sh- what a shame. I know, I know. But, I mean, he does seem to be almost unassailable, is my point, I suppose, Boris. But, but, well, I think Boris Johnson is uh, is pretty unassailable at the moment because the, 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 the vaccines are going well. I mean, I think that's the, the bottom line. I mean, I think politics is a, is a very simple trade in, in many ways. Uh, that, you know, if things are generally going well for a prime minister and a government, then... So-called scandals and, and stories like this don't uh, don't have much effect. I mean, it's when when the mood turns and the, and the government is uh, is being assailed from all sides and is regarded as incompetent or sleazy, or useless. Uh, then I think the pressure the pressure will build. But we're not in that phase at mm. the moment. I mean, we we were close to it for bits of last year when uh, when Boris Johnson was regarded widely regarded in the media as uh, incompetent and, and handling the coronavirus badly. And, you know, Conservative MPs were getting, were even talking about a leadership challenge. Mm. Uh, but, you know, at the moment, you're right, he's unassailable because public opinion generally thinks that he's done a good job on the vaccine. Well, even more incredibly, I heard this morning that people in France are saying that Boris Johnson and the British government actually dealt with the British variant, as they're calling it, much better than the French have done. And in fact, the fact that they're now locking down France... Uh, they should have done it when we did it. Well, yes, I mean, <laughs> I mean absolutely. Miracles will never cease. <laughs> they don't. I mean, what I'm surprised about is that the continental Europeans don't blame us more for, for having given them the British variant. I mean, at least at least they're calling it the British variant. I mean, nobody actually knows where it uh, where it started. It's you know, it may have started. Well, it in might Kent. have started in France and come to Kent it that might, way. It might, you know, it might indeed have started in, in France, but. 
you know, you would have thought with the with the vaccine wars that are going on that uh, that the whole of the continent would unite against us uh, for having given them this this more virulent uh, uh, version of the uh, of the virus. But uh, uh, instead, they seem to be turning on their own politicians uh, for their failure to to uh, handle the situation better. Which I have to say is rather satisfying to see. I'm sorry to sound jingoistic about that, but, uh, you know, they spent a lot of time slagging us off. And it now turns out that we are now getting praised by the individual populations of Europe. And they're not very keen on the EU at all these days. <laughs> well, it's so unexpected for, for Britain to, to do something so obviously uh, well. Uh, and better. <laughs> but again, this is this is our sort of our, our own our own kind of Schadenfreude that we actually take great delight not in other people's misfortunes but in our own because that's what we're well, like. Exactly. There's, a, there's a very strong strand in, in in the in the British character, I think, which which just likes to say how useless we are, yeah, uh, and to beat our chests and 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 say we're a. But it, very much, but it very much comes from the chattering classes, John, doesn't it? The very people who don't like the Union Jack, for example. The people who yesterday from the left were all up in arms because we were declared not to be institutionally racist. It was like they were terribly disappointed. Well, yes, I, I, yes, I think there is a very strong uh, element of that. And that's, that's why when, when we do something well, uh, the chattering classes uh, don't like it. They They're are, embarrassed, they, aren't they? Desperate to find, find ways in which we haven't really done done well at all i mean all this all this stuff about um how how our vaccine uh, success has got nothing to do with brexit uh is it seems to me a desperate uh, displacement activity by uh, by a lot of remainers in the media mm. uh, who can't accept the fact that because of brexit we had we had greater freedoms and it was easier for us uh to to go ahead uh, on our own with the vaccine yes. which was a right thing to do and if if the whole of europe had taken a a competitive um, uh, sort of uh, approach to it, each country competing with each other, uh, then the whole of Europe would have benefited from well, that. Exactly. Because and also the, because... Very, the very existence and administration of something as huge as the European yeah. Union as an organisation um, is diametrically opposed to efficiency in these kinds of things, isn't it? Well, and, and to agility, I mean, to, to reacting quickly yeah. and, uh, and, and getting ahead. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, that is one of the one of the un unavoidable advantages of, uh, of Brexit. And, uh, you know, obviously uh, a lot of Remainers, uh, Remainers in the media don't like it. No. Well, when you see AC Grayling blaming litter on Brexit, you realise that things have really taken a turn for the completely <laughs> and utterly crazy. Well, I mean, it's progress. I mean, everything used to be Tony Blair's fault about 10 years ago. So, <laughs> uh, uh, How soon they forget. John, I think I think we've lost you there. John, thank you very much indeed. John Rental, their chief political commentator at the Independent, with a pretty good, uh, I would say, morning's briefing for you on what is going on um, around and about in the political world. Uh, we have, of course, got elections coming up in May. We are now uh, in the new month of April, so uh, welcome to the officially the spring. Uh, as a result of which, of course, it's just got a lot colder overnight because it was the hottest day of the year uh, so far back in uh, two days ago. Now it's gone back down to eight degrees. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk. Radio. Right now, though, let's talk a little bit about working practices, because, of course, uh, since the pandemic, lots of people have been working from home. Lots of people have not been in an office for the best part of a year. Some people have been on furlough, haven't been working at all. Um, a lot of companies are now suggesting that when they do return relatively to normal working practices, they won't be asking people to come in five days a week. They might only be coming in two days a week. I mean, my own personal view is that we need to get the cities back up and running uh, full of people. However, uh, not everybody agrees with that. We're going to speak now to Joe Rowell, campaigner with the four-day week campaign. Because some research has come out today uh, from Autonomy, a think tank uh, specialising in the future of work, suggesting that an awful lot of companies could actually just go to a four-day week. Let's find out what it's all about. Joe, very good uh, morning to you. Morning. Thanks very doing? much. Uh, yeah, very well indeed. Thanks for joining us. I mean, what is the logic behind working four days instead of five or three days at home or two days? I mean, are, are we seeing a kind of revolution here? I think so. I mean, it looks like the COVID pandemic has effectively killed off the nine to five, five day working week. And then we think that's a good thing because we think for, for a long time now, we've been working in a very unhealthy way. This nine to five, five day week model was very outdated. It's based on a 1940s industrial economy. And that it's time for change on working hours because 
even before the pandemic, more than two thirds were stressed, overworked, burnt out in their job. And we think deep down, most people realize that we are working too much and there's not enough time for the things we love doing in our lives, you know, like spending time with family and friends. I suppose it depends on the money as well, doesn't it? Because if you're in a nice middle class, well-paid job, um, you can probably take holidays when you want. You can go where you want. Not at the moment, obviously. Um, and you can have a reasonable leisure time um, for doing all sorts of activities that might cost you a bit of money. But I suppose for people who are in uh, sort of, you know, lower paid jobs and more manual jobs, which are still in existence, um, it's more difficult, isn't it? It is more difficult to implement in some sectors, but there's no reason why we can't do it. And, you know, we're not calling for a four day working week across the entire economy overnight, but we think there needs to be a roadmap to get there in the same way that we won the weekend and the 40 hour week in the, in the 30s and 40s. We think this is the kind of next boost to workers' rights to, you know, enable us to not only live our lives in a better and happier way, but also to perform better at work. You know, this is a policy that is win win for both employers and workers you know you can get in, in in nearly every job you can get the same amount of work done in four days because wherever this has been trialed and tested productivity always goes up in japan where microsoft trialed it productivity went up 40 percent when they moved to a four-day week no loss of pay so we really think this is a win-win situation for everyone and what's the science behind that then exactly i mean how why do people work more for four days than they would for five because if you're burnt out, overworked, stressed, you're not going to perform well in your job. You know, if you have a bit more time to have a rest, uh, then you're going to come in on the Monday morning much more motivated and, and you're going to perform better. You're going to produce more outputs for your company. And that seems to be the case where this has happened. You know, the, the study that came out yesterday showed that there's a number of, sort of three million companies, sorry, over a million UK firms planning on moving to a four day week, but already we're seeing up to 300,000 people already getting on and doing it. And where has this happened? We've got an accreditation scheme for four-day week work week companies, and we're working with small businesses and helping them do it. Every time, it seems to be the case that productivity goes up, workers are much happier and healthier in their job. And, and you know, it's win-win. What's not to like about it? Uh, well, what's not to like about it, I suppose, is it might not suit everybody. Um, and, and would it be something that would be offered to some um, and not taken up by others? Well, more than, I mean, all the polling shows that more than, you know, more than two thirds of the country want to see it rolled out. Um, we're, you know, I've, I think if we're, we're talking about building a better world of work after the pandemic, surely a four day working week has got to be at the heart of that. You know, this is this is a policy for, to make everyone's lives better. And I think deep down, we could all do a bit, a bit more time for ourselves, really, you know, a bit more leisure time. This would, this would hugely boost local economies as well. If we have yeah, but isn't, it, isn't it more of an individual decision, though, Joe? I mean, if you want to have more personal time for yourself, then that's entirely your affair, and surely you should be able to do that if you wish. But if I don't want to, for example, and I speak as somebody who only works three hours a day, by the way, so uh, you know, don't think that I'm obsessed with working. Um, uh, if I don't want to, I wouldn't want to be told I had to. Do you know what I mean? Well, that's up for you to have that conversation with your employer. You know, that's not what we're hearing across the board. We're hearing that, you know, after a year of a traumatising year for everyone, where we're actually working a lot more than we even were before the pandemic, there's no checks and balances in place. We're hearing that people would love a bit more time off to, to you know, see their family, see their friends that they've missed for the last year. Um, you know, whatever it is people want to do, spend time playing more sport, learn a new instrument. There's, there's so much we could be doing in our lives. We could be living in a much happier way if, if we all had yeah, that's, a bit less Yeah, and that's, all, that's all fine. But well, let's go back to the guys on minimum wage. What about them? Because they would probably say, well, we work six days a week, sometimes seven, because we can't make enough money to exist. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the four-day week is not going to solve all the problems of the economy. You know, we've got a low-wage economy. We need to see living wage go up um, and, and really need to see a ban of zero-hours contracts where, where workers aren't protected in their job in the same way as contracted workers. You know, there's but a, there's a lot a of people of... like zero-hours contracts. A lot of people who work in zero-hours work do it because that's what they want to do. Yeah, but if you ask them whether they can continue with the same flexibility but with a contract and workers' rights like everyone else, they'll say yes. Um, and that is something we should, you know, that's desirable. We, we all deserve workers' rights at work, so we have a... Yeah, you can't really write a contract. You can't really write a contract that says you can work whenever you fancy it, can you? No, but you can work in. You know, as we've seen with the, the ruling, the Uber ruling in in the in the High Court. You know, you can introduce workers' rights for the, for workers, and you can still work flexibly. Um, you can do both of those things. I mean, for an awful lot of companies, as they come back from this pandemic, there's going to be a very different working attitude, anyway, isn't there? Because I think Nationwide last week did a survey of their own employees and. 
and I think half of them only wanted to work two days a week in the office. And that's probably the way it's going to go. Because if you ask somebody, do you want to do less work for the same money? They're always going to say yes, aren't they? Well, exactly. It's popular. You know, that's that's the that's the way the, the weekend was won. And, and, and let's win the four day week that way. Yeah, but well. actually, I mean, but funny enough, now the weekend hasn't been won, really, because more people work at the weekends now than ever. Well, all the more reason why we need, you know, we need some more checks and balances in place and we need a four day. Yeah, but what about people that work in, in Tesco's? Um, you know, you want them working on Sunday, don't you? Yeah, you don't, you don't, want, you don't want them to shut the shops again on Sundays, do you? Of course, but we're not we're not calling for everyone to have the same day off. You know, you spread the you spread the rotor and shift patterns across the week so that each worker has an extra day off. It, it, it's it's not that difficult to do. And you know, the, the pandemic has opened our eyes to the fact that change in the workplace can happen very quickly when we want it. If you look at the majority of workers moving remotely, the furlough scheme. You know, people want change. Let, let, let's build back better after this pandemic, as the Prime Minister Boris Johnson has said himself. OK, thank you very much indeed. Joe Ryle, campaign of the four day week campaign. Do you think that that is something that you would like to do? You see, the thing about asking people how much work they want to do um, is that they will always say, I don't want to do as much work as I do now. But if you say to them, would you like to do less work for less money? Most of the time they'll say, well, no, not really. I'd like to do less work for more money. But that's just human nature, isn't it? 0344 499 1000 is the number. Lots more coming up, including Helen Dale, of course, who's going to be talking to us about the gender problem at the moment uh, in our society, where people are basically saying to young men that they are the problem. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's going to take us into a good place. And I really think uh, we need to be very careful about the messaging that we are giving to young people. And it was quite compelling, not only to watch his testimony, but also to watch that video of George Floyd walking around inside the store. Right. So, you know, they're, the, the prosecution, their job, obviously, is to, uh, is to make sure that Derek Chauvin goes to prison for the rest of his life for killing George Floyd. So they are going to they're going to show as much as they can uh, to try to mitigate some of the damage that's going to come. So this is a you know, this is a long dance. um, And some of the damage is going to include the fact that George Floyd may have been pretty high on something uh, when he was when he was trying to buy those cigarettes with the counterfeit bill uh, and that there was some kind of a struggle between Chauvin and Floyd. Um, so, it, you know, what we're seeing now is really just the start of this. And we haven't seen the whole story by any stretch yet. Right. And, of course, because of what happened in the wake of, uh, of, of his death and because of the outrage that was felt kind of around the world, an awful lot of people, particularly in this country, are going, why are they even having a trial? Because that's the kind of the place we have now arrived at in uh, in this day and age. But of course, you have to have a trial because you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that if you want to convict somebody of murder, that they intended to kill them. 
without a doubt. Um, it you know, it's uh, I think it's that instant gratification of cancel culture yeah. where you know people people on Twitter think that it's just enough that we know what we know. It's like no, we we really need to know the whole story. Exactly. Does this mean it's okay for Derek Chauvin to have have kneeled on the guy's neck for nine minutes? No, nobody's saying that. Right. What they're saying is let's see the whole story. What led up to this? How did this situation end up culminating in the death of a man? Yes. Um, because if anything, we can actually learn something from it. God, I hate to say this, uh, but, you know, maybe we come up with better policing techniques if we understand how things escalated from a, a fake $20 bill and a package of cigarettes to the death of a man on the ground. Well, that's right, because it's a ridiculous kind of uh, manoeuvre, isn't it, from one place, as you say, where a guy has basically passed a bad uh, piece of currency uh, to him actually dying. And you just think to yourself, but nevertheless, I've heard um, commentators on this very radio station say, well, of course, it's an open and shut case. Well, it's clearly not an open and shut case at all, is it? Well, I don't I don't think that there's any court case that you can go, oh, this is open and shut. I mean, there is no such thing as a perfect murder. There's no such thing as a as a you know perfect kidnapping, a perfect crime. Mm. Uh, there's always a series of events that leads up to a situation. And you have to take the whole of it into consideration when you're a juror and when you're you know, when you're passing judgment. Yes. Um, you know, the bottom line is, uh, you know, d- did the guy deserve to die for this? No, he didn't. How did that happen? It's really important to find that answer. Exactly right. And of course, it was you couldn't help but feel great pity for the uh, the guy in the shop who said to, to to the judge and to the jury, you know, I, I I think about it all the time. If only I hadn't accepted that counterfeit bill, none of this would have happened. And you have to think, what a terrible thing to carry with you, you know. Right. I, you know, you get the feeling that the poor guy is blaming himself for yeah. this. And it's like, well, no, somebody was passing dirty currency, uh, you know, currency that was no good. And uh, and that's a, a serious problem. Uh, it's not just about a $20 bill. It's about how many $20 bills that shopkeeper has had to throw away mm. and lose because of criminals. And, you know, that George Floyd was a criminal is absolutely undeniable. Right. What is in question is why again why did this happen why did it happen yes and of course uh, the other thing that's an interesting um window into the way that some people's lives are um the guy the 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 the, the, the cashier in the shop also said one of the reasons that i went out after him because i realized it was a counterfeit bill was that the owner of the shop charges the cashiers the kids that work there basically uh if they take a counterfeit 20 dollar bill they dock them 20 dollars well, and, you know, that's that's another thing. It's like, why should your cashier have to take the hit for that? Um, it's you know, they're not currency experts. <laughs> right. They're they're shopkeepers making fifteen dollars an hour. Mm. Um, that's that's not right. <laughs> no, it really isn't. And uh, but that is the those are the, the lives that they have to live. But it was also interesting to see the way that he was characterizing George Floyd, because you could see George Floyd walking around in the shop. Um, it looked as though he was under the influence of something or other. Uh, indeed, the, the shop the shop cashier said that he looked as though he was under the influence. It took quite a while for him to answer a question that he asked him, you know. And so I'm not sure that helps or hinders the prosecution, does it? Uh, it probably hinders it a little bit in that, you know, again, you don't, there's no perfect crime and there's no perfect victim. You know, the, the, the way that this thing played out, the series of events included his intoxication. Yes. Um, and did that, you know, did his behavior because of the intoxication prompt some of the things that happened? And I want to be really clear. I'm not justifying what happened to him. I'm not. Uh, but it is very, very important to understand everything before you rush to judgment and say, you know, this guy is absolutely the devil and this guy was a saint. Yeah. No, one guy's not Satan and the other one's not a saint. It, you have two perfectly flawed human beings who made some really poor decisions, yes, exactly. really poor decisions. But of course, the case itself is being watched, um, obviously, by, by many people around the world. But in the US of A in particular, it is being watched as a sign of whether 
there is any change in the way that uh, white police officers are tried, because there have been many cases in the past where white police officers have not been convicted of crimes that people thought they should have been convicted of, you know what I mean? It may well be for particularly good reasons, but nevertheless, the the inference is that, you know, the court system will side more with a white police officer than it will with a black victim. Well, the, the court system will side with a police officer, period. I don't care what color they are. Mm. Um, police always get the benefit of the doubt in any case where there is, you know, deadly force or, or any kind of force. Um, you know, the unfortunate thing is when you do have bad cops, and we do have bad cops, you're just like every other piece of society, there are really bad cops out there. Um, and, you know, they're getting away with stuff. So we have to be able to take the, you know, the color of authority sort of out of this thing and and look at them as people and not just police officers, because we have a flawed system that does seem to if you look at the if you look at the numbers, if you look at the stats that that seems to really weigh heavily on the side of police officers, when in fact, there are some who are doing some really, really bad things out there. Yes, and they're doing it with a gun. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I, exactly right. And I mean, this is what a lot of people in this country don't understand about the American system, if you like, because they don't understand that if you're a police officer in the US, you are going out probably on a daily basis thinking that somebody's going to pull a gun on you. Oh, there's every chance that that could happen. Um, and it and it does happen. I, there was a reporter here in San Diego who was doing a report across the convention center and accidentally caught a gunfight between a motorist and a cop. Behind it, uh, I got, guy was getting pulled over. The cop had no reason to think that this was going to dissolve into a gunfight, and it sure did. Right, exactly, and that is the problem. But is Minneapolis, because um, from what I hear, Minneapolis is already very much of a boarded city because of some of the riots that took place there last year. Um, it, but it's very much preparing itself, is it not, for kind of you know similarities to uh, what happened after O.J. Simpson's trial, where you know the the city basically gets lit up. Well, yeah, it, you know, when you've got a high-profile case like this and you have race questions that we've been wrestling with in the United States for quite some time now, um, you have a recipe for disaster. Mm. And, you know, you, you can only hope that the jury is not keeping in mind, oh, what's going to happen if we don't convict, um, that they can get that out of their head. It's like you either convict or you don't mm. based on the evidence. Don't worry about the politics of it. Uh, but after that, anything goes. Yeah. And presumably the defence is going to seek to prove that it was not, in fact, the knee uh, that killed George Floyd, but it was what he had in his system. And they're probably going to go at least for that. Um, they're also, you know, there's, as I understand it, there is a struggle that happened inside the police car that people didn't see on, you know, that wasn't caught on video, right. uh, but may have been caught on police body cams. So, you know, again, it's it's that series of events that led up to the situation how how did this happen that question has to be answered and it has to be answered uh clinically and without emotion and is it something that people are watching people are sort of glued to in america oh yes oh absolutely um you know we have a we have a very volatile situation in the united states right now and I, you know, to, to be honest, I'm glad I'm not on that jury because I don't want to be I wouldn't want to be held responsible for what happens no matter what happens. Hmm. No, I think that's absolutely right. LaDonna, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. LaDonna Harvey there reporting in from the USA where uh, this big trial is going on as we speak. Uh, Derek Chauvin's murder trial um, and a fake $20 bill. That was the, uh, the story yesterday. Uh, this is going to go on for weeks and weeks and weeks, I'm sure. Uh, and everyone uh, has got an interest in what happens uh, over the death of George Floyd. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, uh, let's talk to Willie Rennie, who's leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats. We spoke to the leader of the Tories yesterday, uh, who said that he was hoping uh, for some kind of um, a joint effort by the main parties in Scotland who are for keeping the union uh, to sort of work together if they could. Let's find out from Willie Rennie whether he would encounter uh, or encourage something like that. Willie, very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon. Good to see you again, mate. Yes, nice to see you you too. Hope the old campaign trail is going well. You are allowed out and about up there, are you? Yeah, I love campaigns, as you know. It's uh, it's my favourite time of the year. It's even better than Christmas. (laughs) Have you got a battle bus? No, that's old-fashioned. Is it? No, we just do 
extravagant photo opportunities yes. with massive chess sets and, <laughs> and various other things. Excellent, so, excellent stuff. We were now, on a massive deck chair the other day on the beach at South Queen's Ferry. Very and nice. even the sun came out. Very nice. The sun is shining on the Liberal Democrats. Well, that's very good. Listen, I'm, I'm very encouraged by the appearance and the emergence of your leader, Sir Ed Davey, who suddenly come out from behind whatever he was hiding behind uh, with some policies. He apparently he's, he's turned into a, an anti-lockdowner. Is that is that something you guys are pushing up there as well? He's, well, he's not so much of an anti-lockdowner. He's, he's got a sceptical view about the renewal of the emergency powers because yeah. the extent, the length, I think, needs to be kept under much better review, um, and therefore I think he's he's right about that. Uh, I think his view on vaccine passports is solid as well, because I think vaccine passports could be quite a liberal if they're if they're used extensively in order to access public services, mm. pubs, businesses, and so on. So I think we just need to be careful that the the comfort that the government's found in using emergency powers mm. doesn't continue for too much longer we need to keep these things in check yes and are you in a position to to keep things in check in scotland because obviously many of the powers that nicola sturgeon has has invoked have come a sort of over and above some of the powers in in england uh, and and different again in wales so i mean how much how, can you stop those powers in scotland being overused uh, yes we can i mean we, we don't have a majority government so we can we can keep the government in check in fact we're about to hopefully elect a new parliament that We'll have more Liberal Democrats in it um, that I think will take these civil liberties issues incredibly seriously. Yeah. I mean, we've been broadly supportive of the cautious and careful approach through the pandemic because we need to make sure we keep people safe and keep people alive. Mm. Um, but as we progress out, as the vaccine programme rolls out, we need to make sure we remove the powers as quickly as we possibly can, as safe as we can. Yes, because an awful lot of people in Scotland that I still talk to are getting as fed up as as, as everybody else is. And many of them, of course, in the hospitality business um, who need to be able to start making some money again um, and, and people from the nighttime economy as well. I mean, a lot of people worry that, that there hasn't been enough political kind of will to help those people. I mean, I think there's, there's different views on this. I mean, my, my sense from a lot of businesses, is that they want this to be the last lockdown. They don't want to go back in again. And therefore, in order to make sure we get consumer confidence back up, because ultimately, even if government lifts restrictions, it doesn't mean people will want to go back to mm. the businesses if they don't feel it's safe. So we need to make sure we, we do it responsibly and carefully so we inspire the consumer confidence to return uh, the business. And I think that's what businesses want. They want a certainty about it and they want it to be the last lockdown so that we can move towards opening up businesses. In the meantime, we need to make sure that we get the business support to match the restrictions that are in place. But there's no doubt there's a frustration around. We all feel the frustration. Um, it, they, we've got a bit of plateau in incidents in Scotland with the, the virus. In fact, it's higher than it is in England and certainly Wales. I think Wales has got about half the rate that we've got. Um, just now. So we need to be careful about how things progress. Yes. And you had a leadership debate just the other night with Nicola Sturgeon and, and several others. Uh, what did you make of her assertions that still the most important thing in her book is a second referendum on independence? Well, I think I won the debate, Mike. I don't know if you heard that down there, but I think I won well, the debate. Well, I mean, I would expect you to I say won that, the debate. You know, I would expect that. <laughs> An objective view of a sample size of one person, <laughs> I mean. Yeah. Um, but sounds no like, it sounds that, like a very I, Donald Trumpish thing to say. <laughs> I'm sure my mother thought it was good as well. Yeah, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, but, the, but there's no doubt that Nicola Sturgeon looked out of place arguing for another referendum when thousands of people are dying and thousands more have lost their jobs. I think the it looks, it jars with the public mood just now. I think people want to put recovery first, which mm. is our slogan in the campaign. They want to have a focus on mental health services and creating jobs and education bounce back and taking action on the climate. Those are the things that people want. They want the country brought together, not divided. And I'm afraid that's what Nicola is going to do if she pursues another referendum in the next two and a half years. Mm. And what are you making of the Alex Salmond uh, interference, some might call it, um, his decision to come back into the political fray with the Alba party? Uh, it certainly he's kind of uh, thrown a cat amongst the pigeons, isn't it? He has, and it's pretty ugly. I mean, I think that more than probably ever before, the nationalist movement is divided. Uh, it's, 
you know, Nicola Sturgeon, I think, has lost control of the movement. She used to lead it. She'll be able to turn up and down the independence pressure as she saw fit, but she doesn't control that anymore. Alex Salmond has put his size 10s in the middle of that. Mm. Um, so I think we'll be spending... In some ways, I suppose, we've got a bit of a window into the next five years that could happen, which would have three different factions of the nationalist movement arguing about when and where we have a referendum and how we do it, how we get it. Mm. And that's not what I think Scotland needs. It will just soak up all the energy that should be focusing on recovery, making people's mental health better, getting kids better support in schools and taking action on the climate. Those are the things that people want. And you know, people have got a chance to change that. And if they want to change it, they can vote for a party like ours that's going to put recovery first. And what's your target, Willie, in terms of trying, you know, you obviously want to get more um, Liberal Democrats into the Scottish Parliament, but have you got a sort of number of, of wins in mind or list the wins in mind? That's that's my secret, Mike. Is it? Um, yeah, my public position is 129. Right. But I'll maybe allow somebody else to have one of the seats. But no, but, but seriously, we're looking to grow at... I can never really predict these things. I'm not brilliant at it. But I know we're gaining support. The response to the debate the other night was very positive. People saw that we had a very good programme um, of policies, but also the right kind of priority as well. So I think we're going to grow. How many, I don't know. But I'm feeling very confident about this campaign. OK. Willie Rennie, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats there. We'll be talking to all the candidates uh, and the leaders of all the parties up in Scotland as we go uh, through this month into the uh, May the 6th date for the uh, re-election of the Scottish Parliament. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.